0: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, find out how researchers and Arizona student-athletes are working together to better understand concussions. Celebrate the innovation of Tucson Pioneers at Fort Lowell Day. Stories of the Southwest focuses on what it's like to suddenly become bicultural. And meet two cast members from Live Theater Workshop's production of Old Jews Telling Jokes. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. As the kickoff for Super Bowl 50 draws closer, many Americans are focusing on football and the current controversy surrounding football players and concussions. There's still a lot researchers don't know about how collision sports affect the brain, but an ongoing project in collaboration with Arizona student-athletes is offering a chance to learn. Gisella Tellis has the story.
1: It's the day after a football game at Arizona State University, and tired student athletes stumble out of the locker room and down the hall.
2: All right, what do you want to do first? One
1: by one, they trickle in to see medical assistant Yana Godayev.
2: Can you pee for me?
3: Don't fill it up.
1: They hand her saliva and urine samples before grabbing a snack and getting on with the day.
4: Thanks, sir.
1: It's become a routine, but every sample is part of a scientific study that could reveal what happens in the brain when players collide.
5: It's the impact of a car accident that these professional and and collegiate football players are encountering. So, on a daily basis, they're going through car accident after car accident after car accident um, with these games and those are the impacts that can cause concussion. A concussion, by definition, is alteration of function of the brain um, when there is uh, an injury to the head.
1: That's Javier Cardenas. As a neurologist and a member of the National Football League's Head, Neck, and Spine Committee, Cardenas spends a lot of time thinking about what we know and don't know about concussions. Researchers know that one concussion puts you at greater risk for a second until you recover, and that 98% of those who suffer a concussion do recover. According to Cardenas, it's what researchers don't know that has put concussions at the center of a controversy.
5: The controversy is around what's called CTE, or chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And this is not something that's new to the field of brain injury. This is known and has been well known in boxers. Um, used to be called concussion hemorrhages. It used to be called punch drunk. Harrison Martland uh, in 1936 initially described these things. And he actually described a clinical presentation in which these boxers, these former boxers, would go through these emotional and mood changes. Fast forward now to seeing football players and more microscopic changes, specifically tau protein, in the brain of these football players who um, had suffered multiple injuries and were having these same similar changes in their mood and behavior.
1: CTE has been found in people with a history of repetitive brain trauma and that has raised concerns about the long-term risks of concussion. To understand and prevent CTE, Cardenas says we need to get better at understanding and diagnosing concussions.
5: Right now there's a lot of subjectivity in the diagnosis of concussion, whether or not they have symptoms, whether or not when you're doing an exam you can detect an error in balance or an error in thinking. That's very subjective. So identifying a marker which tells us they've been concussed or not, that's most important.
1: That's where the ASU football team comes in. Cardenas and colleagues at the Phoenix-based Translational Genomics Research Institute, or TGen, teamed up with the Sun Devils to search for markers, or biological signs, of damage to the brain. TGen geneticist Matt Hundleman explains.
6: The theory here, the concept is that When your brain experiences an injury, and uh, repeated impacts might be considered an injury, that we would see a change in this chemical in our body that's already there, that we'd see a change. And the chemical that we follow for this study is RNA. It's a sister chemical to DNA. And we use the RNA as our indicator of changes that might be happening in the brain
1: student athletes who volunteer for the study wear special helmets that record every impact they experience by sending signals to a computer on the sidelines before and after games and whenever they suffer a concussion they provide blood urine and saliva samples the idea Hundleman says is to search the samples for clues to how collisions on the field alter the brain
6: we care about concussions of course But we also care about those athletes that never experience a concussion but get hit a lot. So they have a lot of head impacts. Does that mean that their brain is doing okay? Or is there some injury there that we don't know about? And can we use our biomarkers as an indicator of that? Let's say that the impacts you experienced during the game set you up for a concussion during the practice week. We'd like to know that so we can help those players avoid that concussion.
1: For Sun Devils head coach Todd Graham, the team's participation in the study is a chance to help its players, and a sign that football is changing.
7: I was a defensive back, and I had a lot of episodes where I experienced, uh, you know, head trauma, and uh, they'd give you smell and salt, and we kept going. I never missed a play. You never missed a practice because you had a head trauma. No one knew anything about it.
1: Graham says the team now emphasizes safety and awareness more strongly and takes head injuries much more seriously. Techniques have changed, too, so that student athletes learn to move and tackle in ways that help them avoid injury. What
7: we're doing right now is probably pretty primitive to where we can be. And that's why we need to be proactive in in this research, in this study, uh, to help protect our players and protect our game.
1: The culture change is significant, but it's also very new. New enough that even the team's young players remember a different approach. ASU linebacker Marcus Ball recalls.
6: Like September of 2011, it, and I was a like, sophomore junior in high school. And it happened, You know, obviously playing football, when I hit the guy, I literally seen stars, like stars just blinking. Unfortunately, you know, my team needed me, so I kept playing, but, but I definitely had a concussion. <laughs>
1: Javier Cardenas and his colleagues are now in their third year of the concussion study. Cardenas says they hope their results will change the game of concussion diagnosis and treatment. And that could change the stakes for those who face the greatest risks in football and beyond.
5: Until recently, the number one cause of a traumatic brain injury was a car accident. Crumple zones, airbags, seat belt usage, stability control are all things that have contributed to the safety of cars so that motor vehicle crashes are no longer the number one cause of brain injury. The number one cause of brain injury right now is a fall. The same can be said for sports activities so you think about all the things that can change with a sports activity including changing the way people tackle, changing the rules of the game, improving the helmets, improving techniques so that you reduce the risk of injury.
1: Matt Hunnelman also believes that science can make the sport safer.
6: No one wants football to go away. We're all football fans. But we want to make the game safer for the players. We want to extend their careers and keep them on the field. We can still have the game we love, but have it be safe for the players to participate in for decades of their life. We have to find that right balance.
1: That's a balance that more and more young players are eager to strike. Marcus Ball is one of them.
6: We're blessed enough to have these talents that God's given us to play football, but at the same time, you know, reality is it's just a game. It would be a tragedy, I mean, it would be a tragedy if you were to, you know, get hit so many times or, or deliver blows so many times that, you know, you can't even think straight, you know, 20 years down the road.
1: For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Gisela Tellis.
0: That story was adapted from a television version produced for Arizona Illustrated. You can find it at azpm.org. Traveling back in time to the era of El Fuerte is never easier than during the Fort Lowell Day celebration. It's a look back at over 1,000 years of local history. To tell us what drives this multicultural event, I talked with Fort Lowell resident and organizer Lynn Reitner, who is joined by Dr. Rudy Bird. Bird will be a featured historian this year, dressed in colonial garb to give a demonstration of what he calls the blood and guts medicine that was practiced at the Presidio in the 19th century. About a year and a half ago, I was asked to speak to the County Medical Society.
7: And uh, they wanted me to give a history of medicine up to statehood, which is 1912. And I said, well, how much time do I have? And they said, well, you got about 20 minutes, or 30, 30 minutes at the most. I said, good, well, that's about 12,000 years of history. That gives me 10 minutes for each 4,000 years. The area was inhabited all the way back to the to the last ice age. And Tucson probably could be considered the one of the oldest continuously inhabited areas in North America. One of uh, Lynn's cohorts is Janet Marcus, who heard me do the presentation at the Presidio on the humoral theory of medicine and the kind of medicine that was practiced in the time of the Spanish Presidio, which was... um, about 100 years before uh, Fort Lowell. And she thought it would be a good introduction to talk about that as the lead-in on this continuum of how medicine was practiced at Fort Lowell. So I will do the lead-in and uh, my
0: colleague, Dr. Bob Hunter, is going to talk about how medicine actually was practiced at Fort Lowell. How are you going to be able to demonstrate some of these techniques? Is it just going to be in the form of a lecture or are you going to have instruments and uh, devices on hand? I will have have the instruments and
7: devices on hand and show people how you remove bullets and how you did amputations. And then Dr. Hunter will show how it was done then. We need lots of volunteers because we're going to both be removing limbs.
0: <laughs> okay, excellent. Um, so follow the sound of the screams. Um, oh Yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay. You told me an interesting fact before the interview about when the Europeans, particularly the Spaniards, came to Mexico, that they were fascinated by the state of medicine that was being practiced in North America and Central America at that time. You have to
7: picture where the Spanish were. They are full believers in the humoral theory of medicine, but that depends in good part upon uh, various herbal remedies. So one of the reasons for the conquest was they wanted to find out new herbal remedies that would be helpful in their their ideas about uh, caring people. And it turns out that one of the best herbal gardens in the whole new world was Montezuma's. He had gathered all of the herbal remedies from other places, so the Spanish come in, Cortes conquers Mexico 1519 to 1521. He writes back to the king of Spain saying, don't send any doctors, they have better ones here, which is an amazing circumstance, an amazing belief, and he said, there is one street in Tenochtitlan, which is Mexico City, devoted entirely to pharmacies, to pharmacopoeias. And if you talk to the people who are there today, who are the curanderas and others in this area, you will find that those remedies are still being used.
0: Well, the presentation that you'll be a part of is being referred to as blood and guts medicine. This is the 35th annual celebration. And Lynn, how long have you been involved with the neighborhood?
2: I have been involved with uh, the neighborhood and with the Fort Lowell celebration for 10 years. And over that time, Mark, I have seen it grow and change every year. Somehow we managed to find something special to focus on. Some of the standard ones that people have come for, for miles around to see are the high-speed cavalry drills from the cavalry that comes up from Fort Huachuca to stage them for us. Um, there are regimental band concerts. There is music of many kinds. We have mariachi music. We have music for a country western group called Way Out West. There are um, activities for children all throughout the day. Kids can make adobe bricks and take them home. They can learn to make Mexican paper flowers. Uh, children receive a passport to history, and as they go through all the exhibits, it's stamped and they receive a prize at the end. So there are games that children who would have been living at the fort would have played, and so if you want to bring young folks, they can learn to play those games. Other other features are Tucson Medical Center picks up people in a shuttle bus and takes them through their historic campus, and I want to point out that there are activities for people who do not wish to go on what's called a walking tour. People People who feel they're more limited in their walking abilities. So we have the Tucson Medical Center shuttle. Plus, there is a shuttle bus that can take you from one end of the event at Fort Lowell Park about a half mile down to the historic San Pedro Chapel.
0: Over the decade that you've been involved with this celebration, Lynn, what do you think that this brings to the community?
2: Mark, one of the most frequent comments I hear when people come to Fort Lowell Day is, I have driven down Fort Lowell Road a thousand times, and I had no idea what was really here.
0: Lynn Reitner and Dr. Rudy Bird spoke on behalf of the 35th annual Fort Lowell Day celebration, Saturday, February 13th from 12 to 4 p.m. in the old Fort Lowell neighborhood. Next, a new community project that gives you a place to share your stories. Here is Dimelo: Stories of the Southwest.
8: My mom would sometimes speak English to us, and she said, oh, it's gonna be a piece of cake. va a estar muy bien. And, and in my mind, I remember thinking, well, like, I pictured a pastel, and I said, well, maybe she meant that it's gonna be a sweet treat. Or we, or we would have cake or
4: something. This is Dímelo, a project about identity, community, and culture here in Tucson where we ask you to tell us about your life, and then we feature your true stories. Today, what is it like to find yourself somewhere that should feel familiar, but just doesn't?
8: My name is Gwendolyn Hernandez. I was born in Tucson, but I lived the first years of my life in
4: Mazatlan, Mexico. That's my dad's place of origin. Today, we bring you Gwen's story about getting lost in between between cultures, between cities, between languages. She was nine and living in Mazatlan when her dad got a better job as a plant manager at a maquiladora and decided to move the family to Tucson.
8: Yes, there were many arguments
4: to convince us that that we were going to have an adventure, that we were going on a new journey. She's a U.S. citizen with a Mexican father and a Mexican-American Tucsonan mother. Her parents thought, it should be easy, no? They used
8: arguments like, it's gonna be great, you already know how to speak English, because in the colegio they gave us, we had a teacher and she, and we had uh, English instruction. But I remember that it was the basics. It was like, good morning, teacher, how are you? And we would sing songs and we would sing the pollito chicken gallina hand song. And I thought, well, that may be enough. Each of us, we packed a suitcase and we put it in the trunk of our Ford Fairman. And when we were, as we, my dad was driving um, up north, I remember thinking, well, so many times we've, we've traveled this road for vacation purposes and now we're, we're leaving Mazatlan for good. we We saw the movie e t, and I thought that all the kids would have that that I would play with would show that camaraderie of you know belonging to a gang or having an adventure that you go after. I was expecting to have adventures like that and I mean I was what nine ten years old um but it it didn't happen that way. My mom dressed us in in lace, bobby socks, and dresses, and sandals, and here were the rest of the girls. They were wearing uh, just t-shirts with Michael Jackson prints, and Rainbow bright t-shirts, and, and shorts, and the Reeboks, and so we looked at us, and I looked at them, and even though they, they were similar to me, they, we looked like we were from the other side, from el otro lado. And, and so that, that, that's when it hit me, well, well, where do we belong? And even though we all looked similar, we all had last names that ended with E, Z. It was just so hard because I was just too shy and wasn't able to speak the
2: language.
4: Gwen found fluidity, eventually. And she worked hard. She memorized so much English vocab that she somehow managed to win a spelling bee at Davis Elementary. Don't <laughs> even ask me how I do it, uh, how I did it, but I, I did. She became a pro, ended up bouncing between Mazatlan, Tucson, and Nogales a lot. But she did eventually end up back in Tucson. Secretly, I always wanted to come back. There's,
8: um, I don't know if it's because I was born here, but I think that the place where you're born calls you to go back home Every single day of your life, if you're if you're living away from it, and um, just like a plant with its roots, I came back and I rooted again here in, in this soil.
4: And she's beginning to think about heritage, about fitting in, all over again, for a different reason. Her kids, Ian, eight, and noah brother here. Recently, he just twelve. Turned
5: 12. My birthday is on April 6th, and this time we, we're going to a place, and I know this is going to sound weird, it's called Hermosillo. It's a Mexican place. and
8: I have we tried, tried birthday, to teach so them I Spanish, English and I, I speak to them in Spanish, and to me it's like, please speak Spanish. They just won't speak Spanish. They understand everything, and I wish they would just let let go of of um, their inhibitions with the language. Um, they, They don't like it when I tell them, okay, you're going to a birthday party, so now you gotta dress a little better. You cannot wear your sports pants. You gotta dress a
4: little neat. And they're like, oh, mom, no. Gwen does all the right things. She takes them to Mexican revolutionary museums. She reads them books about Frida and Diego. She feeds them carne asada and sopitas at huge family parties back in Mazatlan. But Nomar and Ian don't always latch on to the things that she wants them to.
5: I saw a stingray. It was really cool and it died. Oh my God. I, I saw a sea turtle.
8: I hear For them real. at night in their beds. They're talking bed. to each other and they're talking about the time when they heard that corrido of the revolucion or when they took a picture with the Pancho Villa, because they have a Pancho Villa, a person dressed as Pancho Villa. I mean, silly things like that, that I I try to, that I feel a little proud of. The other day, my my oldest son did tell me, he said, Mom, I'm so glad we belong to this community, that we're Mexican-American, because only in our community we get to be allowed, and that is okay. I don't want them to feel ashamed of the roots. I want them to feel proud of who they are and how they came to be.
4: Uh-huh. Gwen brought her story to us via our website, demellostories.org. If you'd like to participate in this project, you can find more information there.
0: BIMALO is part of a national initiative called Finding America, presented in collaboration with AIR, the Association for Independence in Radio, supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Old Jews Telling Jokes began as a web series in 2008, highlighting the -the off-the-cuff humor of Jewish senior citizens. Its popularity spawned a best-selling book, a BBC television series, and an off-Broadway play. Live Theater Workshop in Tucson is offering a local production, and I talked with cast members Candace Bean and Michael Woodson about bringing 5,000 years of not so kosher laughter to life.
3: I've kind of described it as basically stand up comedy. There's very minimal set pieces, there's very minimal prop pieces compared to a regular show. It's pretty much just The ensemble cast, on and off, in rotation, standing up, looking out at the audience, delivering these different jokes. It's very
9: reminiscent of uh, vaudeville, actually, because it's almost like a different comedy team coming on and a song, (laughs) a couple of songs. So there's a sort of a review type feel
0: to it. What do you think is um, something you've learned about the elements of Jewish humor in the process of doing this show?
9: The Jewish uh, life and history, I think it is sort of reflected in some of the jokes. And I think that's uh, an important thing to remember. And the fact that they are very willing to um, make fun of themselves. And they also play off these stereotypes, making
0: fun of the stereotypes. Yeah. What kind of advice might you have to people about telling jokes? What have you learned about timing or delivery in this play that's going to be helpful to you, trying to make people laugh in the future? Well, the first thing in telling a joke is uh, don't get ahead of
9: yourself. Uh, Don't say the punchline first. Uh, You'd be surprised how many people, when they're telling a joke, mess up by saying the punchline and then go, oh wait a minute, that's not right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they go back and you can't go back once you've done that. No. If a joke isn't working well, we can try and tweak the timing from performance to performance and get it to where we go, okay, I know how to deliver this line now. Sometimes the punchline needs to be a real punchline. You really gotta punch it, make it louder. Other times you just sort of let it go
0: and people will laugh. Sometimes small works. Yes. Yeah. Did you consider yourself a joke teller before this play, Candace?
3: No, I did not. Um, I think obviously there's some sense of comedic timing that actors just have or they learn over the years of doing different types of shows. So I, I think I came with that kind of experience, but actually just being up in front of people and flat out telling jokes is not something that I do on a regular basis. Um, but I think in terms of getting used to it, it's about just knowing kind of the meat of the joke or the basic components of that joke. And then you can make it your own.
0: Have you laid any jokes from the show on your friends?
3: Yes. I I practiced a few actually on my boyfriend before he came to see the show because I wanted to, to see what he thought of them or I thought there were a few that... I thought he could relate to and would think were really funny so I wanted to test him out.
0: What about you Michael?
9: Well what I did was I went and got on YouTube and got some of the original old Jews telling jokes on there and I've you know fell in love with it so I was just watching that all the time. It's a good source for jokes. <laughs> okay.
3: So a guy picks up the phone and frantically says, You have to send an ambulance to 327 Maple Drive, the Shapiro house, we're having a baby! Okay, calm down. Is this her first child? No, you idiot. This is her husband. Mother goes into her son's room. He's cowering under the covers. Get up. You're going to be late for school. I don't want to go to school. The teachers don't like me, the kids make fun of me. You have to go to school.
5: Why? Because
3: you're the principal. Darling, we've had a wonderful 50 years together. After I'm gone, I want you should have a new life with a new woman. I want she should live in my house, sleep in my bed. I even want her to have all of my beautiful clothes.
9: I'm overwhelmed. That's so generous. But you're a
0: size 12 and she's a size 6. We heard from actors Michael Woodson and Candace Bean Old Jews Telling Jokes is at the Live Theater Workshop in Tucson through February 13th. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.